Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Heart failure, what is it? And what causes it? And are there ways we can avoid getting it? Heart failure is one of those diagnoses that is considered to be a pre-existing condition. That means that those people who may have this condition who get exposed to coronavirus could have a much harder time recovering. We're also seeing some folks who have cardiac effects from COVID. So there's a lot that we're going to cover today with my colleague, Dr. Carol Lai. She's born and raised in Aina Haina, did a fellowship and came back here to help all of us with our management and treatment of, of advanced heart failure as a diagnosis and the causes and ways we can avoid having it, but particularly for those who have it, what they can do to manage their care most effectively. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Carol. Thanks for having me on. Now, you just came back and started working at Hawaii Pacific Health at Straub Medical Center, and this is like coming home for you. You spent quite a few years in a very cold part of the world. Yes, it is. I went away for my training to Boston and Houston, and it's always been my plan to come home to Hawaii, and I'm glad I'm able to come home amidst the pandemic. Well, and we're glad to have you at any time, pandemic or not. Now, you've done some advanced training in heart failure, and I know when people hear the words heart failure, they kind of get the impression, that's it, heart fail, not working, done deal. But there's different types of heart failure, and there's ways that people can live with this. In general, what does heart failure mean, and what are the different degrees of heart failure that we know we have to be concerned about? Yeah, uh, first of all, you know, I, it's really hard telling someone they have heart failure, and I, I really hate using that terminology, but unfortunately, that's just the terminology we use. And heart failure is, you know, mostly a clinical syndrome um, from diseases of the heart muscle. There are two primarily different types of heart failure. There's one where the heart is not pumping well enough to get blood to the body. Um, we call that heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And then we have another type of heart failure where the pumping function is normal, but it's actually the relaxation part that's abnormal and the heart is very stiff. And we refer that as heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So when we talk about that whole idea of the heart pump, what different things affect our heart's ability to pump? Does heart attacks come into play, blockages in the arteries, electrical issues? Do those things affect the ability of the heart to pump? Yeah, so there are a lot of reasons why someone may have heart failure. And the primary reason we think about is blockages in the heart, because if the heart's not able to receive enough oxygen, then the heart muscle can weaken. But there are a lot of other um, reasons why someone may have heart failure, um, high blood pressure, um, diabetes, obesity, kidney problems, obstructive sleep apnea, um, even thyroid problems. So it's really important that when someone does present with symptoms of heart failure, we look at the whole body, not just, you know, the coronary arteries, but if they have high blood pressure, what their other medical problems are, and see if we can find a cause for heart failure. And if you do find a cause, then can you reverse it? Are some types of heart failure reversible or things you can sort of help to, to improve? Yeah, there, it really depends on the type of heart failure. Um, 
that's why we try to find the, the reason for heart failure because if we are able to find a specific reason, those people are more likely to recover than others. So let's talk about some of the treatable ways that somebody might get diagnosed with heart failure. What would be a condition that if you found as an etiology for somebody's heart not working the way you want it to, whether it be the the low reduced ejection fraction or the preserved ejection fraction, what condition might be reversible or might be something that you could potentially reverse the heart dysfunction from? So the first one would be coronary artery disease or blockages in the heart. If we are able to go in and either put a stent or do surgery to bypass the blockages and um, supply oxygen to the rest of the heart muscle, then the heart can recover. That's probably the, the major um, reversible etiology of heart failure we see. Um, there are others um, such as, for example, alcohol use, drug use. If someone um, who has a long history of those problems stop what they're doing, they are able to reverse um, the causes of heart failure. Um, other things such as, you know, controlling blood pressure, diabetes may not reverse it, but can definitely um, improve symptoms and inc- improve outcomes. So it might slow the progression. Correct. Now, we've talked about this term ejection fraction, and that's something you and I are probably familiar with, and some folks may not be. What is an ejection fraction, and what's considered normal? So the ejection fraction is just basically how much the heart can pump. Um, and we primarily look at it through an ultrasound of the heart or echo or even a cardiac MRI. A normal ejection fraction would be anywhere between 55 to 60%. When it's between 40 and 55%, we don't call that heart failure, but they are at risk of heart failure. And then below 40%, we would classify as heart failure. Are there different degrees of heart failure? There are different degrees, and, you know, we look at the ejection fraction. That definitely tells us how severe the heart failure is, but we also look at the patient. You know, looking at their functional class, how much they're able to do, that also gives us a very good indication of where they are and the severity of their heart failure. So you can't just go by a number. You know, somebody might, one person with an ejection fraction, maybe 35, could have a totally different functional status than somebody whose ejection fraction is, you know, 45 or 50. Correct. We like to look at the patient, you know, as a whole. And um, a lot of people focus on the ejection fraction alone. And I understand, you know, the ejection fraction is a, a big component, but it's really, you know, how the overall patient is feeling how much they're able to do. So when we talk about what they're able to do, are we talking about physical activity? Yes, physical activity. If they're able to go around about their normal activity, if they're able to exercise, those are all great. But also if they're able to do daily uh, activities, such as doing housework, chores, yard work, um, even bathing, grooming, those sorts of things. So if you're kind of able to get up get around, take care of yourself. You might have heart failure, but you might still be able to do your daily routine, and that could be managed with certain types of medications. That's correct, and that's the goal of starting these medications is to allow people to do, you know, what they enjoy to do, what they need to do, and to keep them feeling as good as they can for as long as they can.
All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Carol Lai in the studio. She is a cardiologist working at Straub Medical Center, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what to do and what medications are helpful for heart failure and when you might know if you have this diagnosis and what it looks like when it's out of control. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I have Dr. Carol Lai on the phone. She is a cardiology expert with some advanced training in heart failure diagnosis and treatment, and she is a local girl hailing from Aina Haina and coming back to work here in Hawaii, as was her dream and always ours, to have some of our folks come back to help provide us with the most up-to-date, excellent, amazing care that we can right here in Hawaii. Now, right before the break, we were talking about activities of daily living. And if you have heart failure, you know, one of the ways to find out if you're in serious trouble or not is to take a look and see what do you do right now? What can you do? And what are some of the ways in which medications might be able to help you? So at the start of the show, you mentioned a couple of different conditions that potentially could be associated with heart failure. And one of those would be high blood pressure. What sort of blood pressure medications actually help with heart pumping? So there are um, several medications that have been shown to help in people with heart failure, specifically heart failure with decreased pumping function of the heart. Um, There are actually four medications now that we like all patients with heart failure to be on. Um, One is called a beta blocker, so uh, medications such as carvedilol and metoprolol. And um, there's another medication called Entresto um, that has come out within the past 10 years or so that has really been shown to increase symptoms, uh, or decrease symptoms, I'm sorry, and increase um, survival and longevity. Um, There are some other new medications, such as spironolactone, and then a very new medication that came out just within the past, I would say, five years um, called Jardians and Forsiga that we all like to use. And that's sort of a cool one. I mean, I think it's cool because it was originally developed to be a diabetes medication, and yet one of the things they found out is that it actually also helps with heart failure. How does that work? Yeah, it was very surprising. So, you know, diabetes is such a big risk factor for heart problems that whenever there is a drug for diabetes and they run their trials, they need to make sure there's no adverse effects on the heart. So in the primary study of these medications, they found that patients with heart failure actually do better. And on subsequent uh, uh, trials, they've shown that even people without diabetes benefit from this new medication. So now it's kind of been uh, marketed as more of a heart medication um, rather than a diabetes medication. And I've actually been starting it on some of my patients who don't have diabetes. And the good news is it's not really known to cause low sugar in those people who don't have diabetes. The way that it works, it doesn't really lower the sugar to a point where they would have any symptoms. 
correct. It's, it's actually been shown to be a fairly safe medication. Um, you know, it's a, it's a pretty bad diabetes drug, but it's a great medication for heart failure, well tolerated, and it works well with the other medications for heart failure. So there's little interaction. Well, and I think you referenced earlier that, you know, when any, when any new diabetes medication comes out, they have to do trials to make sure that it's not going to cause an adverse effect on the heart. And I think one of the reasons they did that was because there have been some diabetes medications in the past that did potentially put people at risk with their heart. Yeah, correct. There was uh, one class of medications, um, pioglitazone, I don't even know how to pronounce these medications anymore, um, that have been shown to have very serious effects with people with heart failure. So we definitely, you know, like to avoid those medications aren't in heart failure and definitely new medications that come out, we, we need to make sure they don't have any side effects on the heart. Absolutely. Well, I think those, the medications in that class, I think the one from all those years ago, Avandia, I think stopped uh, on the market, they, it was no longer available for a while because it was an, it was for those for whom it worked, it was a good diabetes medicine, but it was shown that it could actually cause people to have some heart issues. And as you mentioned, mm-hmm. diabetes is a huge risk factor for people having cardiac problems. So giving a medication to fix one problem that potentially is going to worsen another doesn't really make so much sense. But It's interesting that you mentioned that's a new cardiac medication because the folks out there who might be on it for diabetes are like, what, what? And uh, yet they're getting an added benefit, an added bonus to help them if they ever develop a heart condition. Now, you mentioned that uh, beta blockers, spironolactone, two classes of medications that have been around for a long time, and then the new ones, Entresto and Jardians. So this combination of four medications is often given for people who are found to be in different stages of heart failure. Do you ever see that measurement that we look at, ejection fraction, or somebody's ability to get up and do their own activities, do you ever see it significantly improve? Have you ever had a patient for whom they went from, I can't do much, to I'm now out in the yard? Yes, definitely. So in the trials, they did not look at if the injection uh, ejection fraction improved with this medication, but um, clinically, we do see that. And I definitely see patients who feel much better. Um, just a couple months ago, I had a lady with really bad heart failure. Her ejection fraction was maybe 20, 25% at best. And she was on, you know, some medications, but not a whole lot. And she was really not able to do anything, couldn't even do laundry. That caused so much shortness of breath. And we started Entresto in addition to Carvedilol on her. I'm working on getting her on some of the other medications. And she came back to see me two weeks after starting the Entresto, and she feels much better. She's doing laundry. She's able to walk a little bit around her neighborhood. So it's really remarkable how much medications alone can do. Well, and what a success. I mean, within two weeks, she's starting to feel better, and that's got to improve her motivation, too, to continue on the medication because she's had this visible change in how she Mm -hmm. feels when she does these activities. And, you know, it might seem like it's just laundry, but for her, it's more than that. It's actually the ability to get up, walk around, and, you know, in some cases even remain independent because you yeah. can take care of yourself. That's that's a huge issue. Now, yeah, with and this... I, I, I was going to say, it's, it's really hard for, you know, people to take so many medications, um, especially if 
they feel okay. But I, you know, I, I think if people are able to stick to the medications, they will realize a couple of weeks down the line, they definitely feel better than they did before. Any tips or tricks for folks who have trouble remembering to take all the medications? You know, I would just put your medications in a pill box, set a, a timer on your phone, you know, just make it a part of your routine. So how would someone know if they were given a diagnosis of heart failure and let's say that they were taking all their medications, how would they know if things started to not go well? What would be some of the early signs they might feel, both with their energy level or maybe some physical signs that they might be in trouble? So one thing to look at is really shortness of breath with activity. And it may be very subtle. You know, it may be that one day you're able to climb up a flight of stairs, and the next day you're only able to make it halfway without feeling short of breath. Looking for fluid on your body is also a big thing, and people do tend to collect fluid in different places. The most common place is going to be your legs, especially your shins, your ankles, your feet, but also your abdomen. Some people can start feeling more distended and more full. Other uh, signs are just overall feeling more fatigued, Um, Sometimes shortness of breath when they lay down flat and even waking up at night, coughing, gasping, those can all be symptoms of worsening heart failure. And how might you differentiate that from something like sleep apnea? Some of those symptoms you described, the waking up and the coughing or gasping, are sometimes associated with people who don't realize it, but they get diagnosed with apnea. Right. So it's really important to, you know, come into your doctor, get a good physical exam, We have ways where we can see if there's any fluid on the body, maybe getting an echocardiogram or ultrasound of the heart. And looking at labs um, can also tell us if there's fluid hiding in the body. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. I have Dr. Carol Lai from Straub Medical Center on the line, and we're talking about heart failure. Don't get it, but if you do, there are some ways and some medications and some things that can be done to help you. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what some of the testing and treatment can be, that echocardiogram we've talked about, and also we'll talk about blood tests and other ways that we can monitor your heart to make sure that you're doing as well as you feel you might be doing if you get diagnosed with this medical condition of heart failure. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak with Dr. Carol Lai from Straub Medical Center. She is a cardiologist extraordinaire, and she has come back to help all of those of us here in the islands who take care of patients or those people who have been diagnosed with advanced levels of heart failure. Now, right before the break, we were talking about ways we can monitor people. So one way is to make sure that you're not short of breath and you don't have any of those signs or symptoms. Other ways are to come in and to check in and see your doctor. Uh, Dr. Lai, you mentioned that an echocardiogram is one way that we can check out your heart. What exactly is that test, and does it involve a lot of needles? No needles at all. So what an echocardiogram is, is it uses an ultrasound, similarly to how we ultrasound pregnant women to look at the babies, but we look at the heart. 
And an echo tells us a lot. You know, it first tells us what the cause of heart failure is. Is it a pumping function problem or is it a relaxation problem? And then it also looks at the heart valves, if there are any leaky valves or tight valves that might be causing heart failure. And then the last thing that I really like to look at is it looks at the pressures um, in the heart because that gives us an indication of how much fluid is in the heart and therefore the body. So that pressure measurement can kind of give you that difference between somebody who might wake up gasping and have, you know, sleep apnea versus someone who might wake up and have a condition related to their heart going into worsening failure. Correct. So are there any blood tests that can be done to help monitor heart failure? Yeah, so for patients with heart failure, I like to look at their kidney function and electrolytes, their liver function, and then this one test called the brain natriuretic peptide, or BNP. And this uh, cardiac enzyme is an indirect marker for how much fluid is in the body. So when there is a lot of fluid in the heart, the heart muscle stretches and it releases this BNP enzyme. And the function of this enzyme is to diurese, meaning get rid of fluid in the body. So it's a simple blood test that we can use, and we can get an indication of how, um, how much fluid someone may have on their body. And, you know, sometimes it's, it's very hard. People can hide their fluid very well. So the, having the BNP is just another... Um, lab that can help us with diagnosis and also treatment. So what's a normal level and what level would indicate serious trouble? So it depends on your age, actually, but normal level would be, I would say, less than 450. And if you're older, then we um, the levels are a little bit more lenient. I also like to use the level as a trend as how well our medications are working. And so if someone comes in with a very high BNP during their hospitalization and we check a BNP the day before their discharge, if the BNP has come down by 30 40%, then that indicates that we've done a good job at treating their heart failure. And one of those treatments might be to use something called Lasix or other diuretics. Correct. So Lasix or other diuretics in that class are the primary way we treat symptoms and fluid in the body. So Definitely, if you're having shortness of breath, swelling in the legs, weight gain, Lasix is definitely something that will help with all of those. Now, for some folks, if they get really comfortable with taking care of their their heart failure, they check their weight every day. They notice if they go up two pounds in the course of uh, like 24 hours, and they sometimes are given instructions on how to take extra Lasix doses at home on their own. What are some of the ways that people can do that, and is it effective for them to do their own monitoring and treatment at home if they know that their numbers are looking like there's trouble? I think in the right patient, it can be. It's got to be someone who's really aware of their body, really aware of their weight, their diet, how much fluid they're taking in. And those people, they know their bodies better than we do. They know as soon as they can't put their ring on or if their shoes fit a little funny, they know they need an extra dose of Lasix. So I think it is appropriate in some people to take an extra Lasix here and there. But it is important to notify your doctor if you're doing that and if you're doing it more regularly. That way we can check to see if we need to titrate the other heart failure medications or if we need to check labs to make sure the kidneys and the electrolytes are all okay. Now, you mentioned that 
depending on if, you know, you know your diet. Are there certain things in the diet that would cause someone with heart failure to have a bigger problem than maybe if they didn't eat that? So a high salt diet really makes heart failure worse because the more salt you eat, the more fluid your body tends to retain. So we always ask patients to follow a low salt diet. And the recommendation is less than two grams per day, but that is very, very hard to do. I don't think anyone can successfully do that and have a good quality of life. But, you know, as much as they can to to decrease the salt in their diet and know that, you know, the salt in our diet doesn't come from the table salt that we use, but it can be hidden, you know, in the processed foods we eat, in the shoyu that we put on our rice, you know, in the breads even. So just be aware of what we are eating. Yeah, it's very, it's very funny that you mentioned that because I've had some patients who have said, I follow a low salt diet. And I'm like, well, what do you use instead of salt? Oh, soy sauce and shoyu. And I'm like, well, (laughs) that's liquid salt. So that's why it's not working here, buddy. So, you know, it's one of those things that you're right. The education is a huge portion of this. And I think that's another aspect that a lot of folks don't have the opportunity to hear about. So there are some things like cardiac rehab or times that you can spend with nutritionists or dietitians or even heart failure nurse practitioners that can help go through sort of a daily lifestyle routine and physicians like yourself who can help people to manage their diabetes and I'm sorry, their heart failure and kind of empower them to really take care of what's going on in their health care. What are some of the tips and tricks if you have patients who have heart failure? What are some of the daily things you want to make sure that they remember to do or that their loved ones kind of prime and prep and remind the person with heart failure to do? So definitely take their medications. If you're not taking your medications, it's important to let your doctors know why. Maybe you feel really dizzy, your blood pressure is low, but it's really important for us to know, understand why you're not taking your medications That way we can try and optimize what you are on. Definitely paying attention to your symptoms. If you're having worsening swelling in the legs, if you're more short of breath, if your weight has gone up, the magic number to me is more than three pounds over a 24-hour period. Watching your uh, diet, trying to stick to a low-salt diet, and limiting your fluid intake. You know, there's this myth about needing to drink eight glasses of water a day, and people with heart failure, it's a fluid problem. So the more water you take in, the harder your body has to work to get rid of the fluid. So I always say just drink for thirst instead of, you know, needing to take X amount of glasses of water per day. And when we talk about fluids, that includes all fluids. That includes all fluid, yes, including coffee and soups and sodas, unfortunately. Well, and that's sometimes the hard part for folks is, you know, when they're on a fluid restriction, it can really make them think, oh, well, I didn't drink water. I just drank coffee and then I had some soda. That doesn't count, but mm-hmm. it's a total fluid amount. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, we we say less than two liters is what to aim, we, we should aim for. Um, but again, it's really hard to follow certain restrictions. So just, you know, do the best that you're able to. Well, and I think the other thing that I often tell folks to do, and you would be the perfect person if they ever came to see you, is to have a plan. You know, if you know that you're going to be going somewhere and you have the thought that you might be violating the low salt rule because you're going to a party or you're going to a wedding or you're going to some kind of an event, then, you know, prepare in advance and find out what your doctors want you to do 
if in fact they have some different instructions for you so that they can kind of help you walk through the consequences, but also you might have some of the treatment in your own medicine cabinet. Yeah, totally agree. It's always great to be in communication with your doctor. Well, I bet people, a lot of people are going to get in communication with you, Dr. Caroline, and uh, I thank you for sharing your expertise with us today on The Body Show. Thank you for having me. We'll do it again, I promise. If you'd like to hear this show again, you can always click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Our engineer is David Chong, and we will be happy to see you next week as we talk more about ways to help stay healthy and things we can all do to make sure that we are doing the best we can to stay alive and to thrive in our lives. We will see you next week, Monday, on The Body Show, and we'll talk more. See you then.